0: many or most of the worst decisions we make in our life we make out of fear. Now, you may think that you don't really feel afraid and um, feeling afraid is not the same thing as making a decision out of fear. There's lots of ways, there's lots of different symptoms of that, like avoiding decision making Sometimes when I talk to younger people I talk about the um, The fear of converting our potential life Into our actual life Right? A lot of people go through that Seems like into their 30s and 40s now But The the problem with your Potential life is that it's like a mango It goes bad if you don't convert it into something And um, But yet, many of us Just, we don't want to make a call Or we make a call and we go back and forth on it Or we avoid commitment or we procrastinate things that we really don't need to or we choose the path of least resistance rather than the most noble path we know of. Or we live pretty undisciplined lives. And a lot of that stuff really comes from the fact that the minute you make choices, you limit options. And if that choice doesn't turn out the way you want, the terror is that you'll, have, you'll be locked in. One of the biggest fears that people have in our day and age One of the reasons they don't make decisions And oftentimes make terrible ones Is for fear of limiting your options You know What if I marry her and she turns out to be a really big jerk Or him Or what if I have a kid and they're just really not what I hoped Or Um what if that job, what if I get that job and do that degree and then you, it does, isn't done here anymore? You know? Um, in 734 BC, um, there was a king in Judah, which is a southern kingdom in Israel. And his name was Ahaz, and he really, really needed a savior because he was terrified, and rightly so. Um, he'd become king six or seven years earlier, And um, it just says in the Bible that he had followed the way of the kings of Israel. That's the northern kingdom, which you've already heard by that point in the Bible for two books about how the way of the northern kings of Israel was just basically idolatry, idolatry all the time, baby. And so that's what he did, which included actually burning at least one of his children alive in worshiping one of the fertility gods. Right? It's not— generally thought of as a nice thing to do. And so after seven years of that, God had pretty much had enough of it. And so he used one of the geopolitical events of the time to bring judgment, disciplinary judgment, on King Ahaz to get him moving in the right direction again. And here's what happened. The northern kingdom of Israel, which was north of Judah, and just to the east of them, Aram is the name of the Bible, but we know it today as Syria, to their northeast was a brewing world power called Assyria. It was on the rise, and it looked bad, and they were winning battles, and they won battles in the most brutal way possible. And they realized that the only way they were going to survive this is if they teamed up. So they teamed up, and since, you know, Ahaz and Judah behaved about the same way as the king of Israel, they thought, this, he, they thought they'd thought they make a triumvirate, and the three of them would stand against Assyria. And so they talked to Judah about it, and Ahaz declined to join the alliance. Right? Why join the alliance? They're going to have to fight Assyria anyway right? Except here's how Israel and Aram Israel's also called Ephraim Decided to handle that They're like, well listen When Assyria attacks us We can't fight a two-front war Against the largest power in the world So if Judah's not going to join us We're going to conquer them So that they have to join us We'll take their men, put them in our armies And then we'll be able to fight this thing So instead of attacking Assyria They team up and attack Judah right? It says that Ephraim, or Israel, came down. In one battle, they killed 120,000 of Judah's troops, took 200,000 women and children as slaves back to Israel. Syria invaded from the northeast, and they laid siege to Jerusalem where Ahaz was, which included them killing his chief of staff, his head general, and one of his kids. It's Ahaz's kids. Meanwhile, on the far east of Judah is, was a a country called Edom, and on the far west was the Philistine kingdom, Philistia. And they're like, dude, Ahaz is not coming out of Jerusalem. It's like Black Friday on the coastal plains. So they get their raiding parties together, and they just start raiding through the towns on the east and western sides of Judah. Because Ahaz can't help, right? So they're tearing through, burning stuff, stealing crops, stealing livestock, doing whatever they want, taking back towns Judah had taken from them. Right? And and Jerusalem is holding, but that's about it. And Ahaz has to, you know, feels like he's got to do something. What are you going to do? And that is the context in which Isaiah 7 happens. So let's read it together. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 7. If you don't, the Pew Bible, it's uh, page 1069. It won't be on the screen, and I am going to read the whole thing, so you might want to look at it. (coughs) Sorry, I'm almost better, I promise. All right, how we doing? Find it? Awesome. All right, Isaiah 7. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah... King Rezin of Aram, that's Syria, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, that's also Ephraim, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah the prophet, Go out, you and your son, Share Jeshub to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road of the washerman's field. Because Ahaz wouldn't see him without an appointment. He doesn't want to see him, so he's going to meet him. Say to him, be careful. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram... And the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Romalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, Is it not enough that you try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from the distant streams of Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices in the rocks. On all the thorn bushes and on all the water holes. In that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the river, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and the hair of your legs, and to take off your beards also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two goats, and because of the abundance of the milk they give, he will have curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, in every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels, there will only be briars and thorns. Men will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for all the hills once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for fear of the briars and thorns. They will become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run. Isn't that a wonderful little Christmas passage? Hmm. This makes you warm all over, doesn't it? Now, that's what God said. Now, this is what Ahaz did. It's in the book of 2 Kings, sixteen seven eighteen. 18. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. I am your servant and vassal. That means slave state. Come up and save me out of the hands of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Ker and put resin to death. Then king Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. And then for several verses, it talks about all the changes of worship Ahaz made in response to the king of Assyria saving him. He put that altar in place and moved God's altar off to the side. When we want to talk to the Lord, we'll use that altar for for finding, you know, hearing from God. But this is what we'll do all our— He moved—he moved the— The washing basins. He moved a number of things God commanded to be there. He took down um, the the royal awning. He took down a number of things. And it says in verse 18, this is how that passage ends. It says, He did it in deference to the king of Assyria. Right? Which is not so subtle a way that ought to lead us to some question something like this Who actually was Ahaz's savior? Right? Which, you think you might know the answer to that question, right? Tiglath pleaser, who's no pleaser, right? That's a pun, but a bad one um, That's true But whenever you have an idol that is your real savior What does that mean your real, real savior is? It's you, right? Why? Because you're not trusting somebody else to manage your salvation You're trusting yourself to manage your salvation In doing so, you're utilizing this thing that you think you can control Which is exactly where Ahaz had it all wrong, right? You think you can control Tiglath-Pileser? Really? You think he's going to take over Damascus And take over Samaria And destroy those two countries And then he's just going to leave you alone Really? Think about what the prophecy says. The prophecy says, here's the good news, Ahaz. You don't have to worry about Israel and Damascus. They're like the end of a campfire. They're two little smoldering sticks. They've burned all the way out, and they're almost burned out. You don't have to worry about them. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. The reason they're almost burned out is because Assyria is going to come and destroy them, and then they're going to keep coming. And they're coming for you. Right? Right? Think about it. A child is going to be born. Who is who? Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to eat what? Cheese curds. He's from Wisconsin. (laughs) And honey, right? He's going to eat curds and honey. And when he's old enough to know right from wrong, what's going to happen? These two kingdoms are going to be removed. Right? But it says in the text, if you look close— before he does that. So when he's old enough to know right from wrong, he's going to eat honey and curds, right? And before that, those two kingdoms are going to be destroyed, right? Now, honestly, what is the theological significance of the diet of the Emmanuel child, right? Have you ever wondered that? He eats curds and, and, and honey, huh? Which, it's very easy to go from there to think, oh, he's going to be like John the Baptist or something. He's going to be some kind of desert mystic. That's not what it means. It's a kid living in his mommy's house. You think, he's, you think he's wearing camel belts and going around chanting from the rooftop? No. No. Do you remember the rest of the passage? A going to come and destroy everything. The only thing you're going to have are your livestock, because there's going to be nothing cultivated anymore. All the farmlands are going to be totally fallow Which means if you've got cows and sheep, that's great news Because they can graze anywhere There's going to be plenty of water because you're not going to be using it for cultivation There's going to be no grain, no wheat, no barley, no nothing all, There's going to be no grapes, no wine, none of that All there's going to be is cows you can turn loose on things And so you're going to have lots of milk And there's going to be bees everywhere Because there's going to be lots of wildflowers Because that's all that's going to be growing And so this little boy, when he's a little kid, before he knows right from wrong, God's going to destroy these two kingdoms. But by the time he's old enough to know right from wrong, which isn't that long from now, he's only going to have curds and honey to eat because Judah is going to be destroyed by Assyria. Or by somebody. That's not great news, right? You see, what comes up in this passage and what comes up in so many passages in the Bible is what one economist who was not a Christian called the fatal conceit of humanity. That is, what life ends up teaching us is how little we can really control and what we imagine we can design. You see, in the Old Testament— Managing your own salvation, self-salvation, was called idolatry God is God, you make another God, that's an idol In modern 2013 management language, that is simply designing success You design an outcome you want, you manage the systematic and strategic plan to get to that outcome, and you make it happen And if some kind of moral rules that God has made about something get in the way, so much the worse for those rules You can't be bound by them You've got to be able to work your strategic plan For the outcome that you're after And that's all there is to it And what God is saying in this passage And in every passage of the Bible Is No, don't, in fact Andy Stanley once said The whole message of the Old Testament is God saying Please trust me Just, just please trust me And one of the realizations that we have to make Is that When we manage our own success, when we engage in what the Old Testament called idolatry, when we engage in self-salvation where God can say what he wants, but we're going to manage the success that we're after, there's a couple things that we need to realize in relationship to what um, people just call unintended consequences. When you do what you want and you manage your success, here's what you're going to find out. There are so many things that you think you can control that you can't and so many variables you haven't even imagined which will completely change the outcome that you think you're after. And then even when you get something like the outcome you think you're after, it's going to become sand in your mouth. When you don't trust God and you manage your own salvation, it sounds like a really good idea and it will kill you. The unintended consequences when you don't trust God are almost always all negative. And that's what happened to Ahaz, right? He did the savvy political thing. He did what all kings in the ancient world did when they needed help. In fact, if you read through the whole Old Testament, you'll see kings doing this all the time. This king attacked this king. He appealed to this king. This guy attacked him when his army wasn't there, killed him, and then everything was cool. But what normally is supposed to happen is this king comes in and kills these people, takes everything that belongs to them, and that's his payoff, and then he ends up leaving these people alone. Not Assyria. They don't play by the same rules. And you don't know that, but God knows that. Be careful who you trust your fate, too. There is one who, when he manages your life, the unintended consequences are almost always good. And there are a hundred other ways to manage your own life where the unintended consequences are almost always bad. The second thing about unintended consequences to look at Oh, sorry. Sidebar. One of the things that people—I needed to cover this because this is where people get cynical about Christian faith. One of the things that people will often say about Christian faith when I say, listen, a huge part of Christian faith is having faith. What does that look like? It means actually trusting God. Discerning what God wants us to do with our lives and doing it, and doing it out of faith, and knowing that God is calling us to that really lovingly and that it's really going to be good, even though it looks like it's not going to work out very well. And so people say, well, that doesn't sound very good, because if you've got all these rules in the Bible, it's going to clamp down your whole life. You're going to make no decisions for yourself. Everything's going to be decided for you. You're not going to have any freedom. It's going to be slavery. It's going to be boring, and it's going to be terrible. And it's terrifying, especially for people who live in a culture who want to keep all their options open, right? But one of my um, seminary professors, Paul Hebert, said this one time. He said, one of the things that sometimes, for some reason, escapes people is that— Every example of a servant of God in the New Testament where Jesus is telling parables is always a steward, which is basically a manager, which isn't an accountant. So think about it this way. This guy on the left, right? His name is David—or Douglas Emmeldorf. He's the chairman of the CBO. The CBO is the Congressional Budget Office, right? Now, I would never want to work in the CBO I really admire those people In fact, I really admire accountants Because here's what happens at the CBO Congress, both parties of Congress Want to know the numbers on something So they tell the CBO What assumptions to make mathematically And then they tell them to do the math And then the CBO does the math The politicians state the math publicly And it's always wrong Always wrong, always wrong Oftentimes trillions of dollars wrong From both parties And people go, the CBO was so wrong And the CBO says, and they're right when they say it They go, listen, we just do the math Because they're accountants They actually don't have the right to do anything but the math The politicians tell them what to assume Assume this interest rate Assume this much job growth Assume Assume this, assume this, assume this, assume this They get told the variables They just are supposed to turn the computational crank and then, everybody goes on TV, and what do the politicians say? They say, not, I gave preposterous assumptions to the CBO, and now they say this. They say, the CBO says, blah, 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 which is nonpartisan. Except you gave them partisan, right? It's crazy. And so the CBO people go, look, dude, we're accountants, okay? We don't make this stuff up. We don't get to decide what it is. The Republicans told us this is debt, and we just, we just cranked it out, and we gave them the report. That's all there is to it. Don't blame us. And they're right. Because they're accountants. Now they're not right because they're accountants, but they're right in this case because they're accountants. That's totally different from being a colonel. Right? Now both accountants, the head American accountant, right? And a colonel are both men or women under authority, right? They're one hundred percent under authority. They don't have the right to do whatever they want. Right? Can we all agree on this? Okay. But the scope of what they're doing is totally different. The accountant is told exactly what to do, and they have to do exactly what they're supposed to do, and that's it. And that is not the metaphor the Bible uses for you being under authority if you believe in Jesus. The metaphor that the Bible uses is much more like a kernel Are they under authority? Absolutely Are they supposed to make tons of decisions by themselves Invoke an enormous amount of creativity Take an enormous amount of risk Decide who to believe in, who not to believe in Train, decipher, deliver, plan, execute <coughs> Absolutely Are they free men doing amazing things? Yes You see, you just gotta get your metaphor straight Right? Are we going to be under authority when we follow—when we trust God instead of our own self-salvation? Yes. Is it going to be terrible? No. Are you boring if you're an accountant? It just depends on you. <laughs> so the first is the negative unintended consequences when we, des- when we design our future. You're, you'd be terrified to know how little you know about the variables you can control. And when you, when you, when you plan your own future What you can see is so narrow that you'll always blow it But the other, the next thing to think about is the positive unintended con- consequences from God's design Now, I'm not going to talk about this now because there's not a lot of good unintended consequences of this event Sadly, Ahaz doesn't believe and so he doesn't get good unintended consequences Except, except, remember the 200,000 people taken to slavery I mentioned before? Right? Think about them, right? Like, they they didn't have a dog in this fight. This is God's discipline on Ahaz, and now they're getting taken to slavery, right? Which, there isn't anything nice that you can say about the 120 people who got killed, but it's interesting what happens in the book of Chronicles. It talks about this. The Ephraimites come down, they take all these people captive, and they're taking them back to Israel as their slaves. They're like, yeah, man, we won! And this is what it says happens. The Israelites took captive from their kinsmen, 200,000 wives, sons, and daughters— They also took a great deal of plunder, which they carried back to Samaria, the capital of Israel. But a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there, and he went out to meet the army when it returned to Samaria. Now, this guy's got some guts, right? He said to them, Because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven. And now you intend to make the men and women of Judah in Jerusalem your slaves, but aren't you also guilty of this, of sins against the Lord? Your of the saint, also guilty of sins against the Lord your God. You see what he's saying? He's saying, "Are you sure you're getting used by God to judge these people? Are you sure you want to treat them this way? Because think about this: you deserve exactly what they get, right? And then he says this." Now listen to me. Send back your fellow countrymen you have taken as prisoners, for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. Then some of the leaders of Ephraim, Azariah, son of uh, Jehohanan, jo- jo- um, Barakiah, son of, oh, that's a good one, Mishalmoth, confronted those who were arriving from the war. You must not— rec- <laughs> We'll have a pronunciation contest next week. You must not bring those prisoners here, they said, or we will be guilty before the Lord. Do you intend to add to our sin and guilt? See, these guys know. They know they're idolaters. They know they deserve exactly what they've done to Judah. And they're like, you want to you add to our guilt this? Are you sure? Right? Rest on us. So the soldiers gave up the prisoners, the plunder, and the presence of the officials. See, they didn't even just give up the people. They gave up the stuff too. The presence of the officials and all the assembly, the men designated by name— took the prisoners, and from the plunder they clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, food and drink, and healing balm. And all those who were weak they put on donkeys. And so they took them back to their fellow countrymen at Jericho, the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. Now think about that. And then think about the Assyrians. Now you might say, Nick, look, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for a while. I trust God. He's the most important thing in my life. And, you know, I just—that's I just, just who I am. Like, you're—you know, you're preaching in the choir. Okay. Is that true even when you're in the, under the direct discipline of God for being an idiot? Like, when, when God has to do something to you, even then will you trust him? Because this is how he treats his own people. His discipline comes in, and then it's mitigated. It's mediated. He doesn't hand us completely over to the thing. He brings out something— that's not what the Assyrians do and that's your other choice even even when it looks like god wouldn't not just he he, he wouldn't want to bring out any good consequences there's almost always something like this where he holds something back and he changes something around and he already takes some step to lighten it which is always dangerous for him because if we do something idiotic and he blesses it. What's that going to produce in us, character-wise? Well, I can just keep doing this, right? It's always—I da- mean, I, those of your parents know this. It's always dangerous for your kid to do something for you to properly punish them and make them feel bad, and then to like mitigate it at the end and be like, "Well, but," uh. or you like you don't actually do the whole punishment, right? The other day. Jude was being rude to—I to, think it was Scott or, was, you know, one of the adults in my household. He's supposed to listen to every adult immediately every time they talk to him the first time. There's no excuse to not do that. He's six. He knows better. And he was—he was—he was mouthing it off to Scott or somebody. And I was like, look, buddy. Oh, he was—he was bouncing the ball when there are still people sleeping in my basement and you can hear everything. And we told him, I think, three times. I told him and Scott told him not to. I said, buddy, you get all your balls, you put them in that closet, and you close them up for two days. That's not that hard a punishment. But he asked me after one day if he could get his balls out. Right? He's like, well, it was that day, and then He's like, no, 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 I told you the day And that's when you can have him back And you can't have him back a minute before that You need to learn to respect grown-ups He goes, okay, and he walks away Did something else I can't tell you how many modern parents I see go Well, buddy, you've been really good the last day So why don't you go ahead and get out your basketball You're a free person That's really dangerous for your kid's character And it's really dangerous when God does that Right? And so a lot of times—it's really hard to do—but look, there's always something, like, in there. Right? Now, sometimes I only talk about those two things, but there's actually a third one. There's bad unintended consequences when we manage our own success. There's always—there's good intended consequences when we trust God. But here's—here's the third one, which I don't always talk about. There are usually good unintended consequences even when we—in spite of us designing our own salvation. God still wants to get us to redemption. He doesn't want it to end with punishment. He doesn't want to be like, look, he always is trying to turn it back over this way and to do something redemptive. And that's one of the things that comes across really strongly in this passage in a way that does, people don't always see. And the more they see it in its real historical context, the harder it is to see. Because when you look at Isaiah 7, it's a really negative passage, right? Right? It's not a positive passage. It's it's virtually 100% negative. And yet, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And in this context, you know what that means? To destroy you. That's what it meant in that passage, doesn't it? Which Now, in case you don't think that, you're like, "Nick, you're just kind of you always make things more negative than they need to be." That's true. Just not in this case, okay? The very next chapter works this out more. And this is what it says. This is God speaking. Because this people has rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloah and rejoices over Rezin, the son of Ramaliah, right? He's talking about about Israel, the northern kingdom now, because they're hanging out with Rezin, who's the Aram guy. Got it? Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the river, the king of Assyria, with all his pomp— and it will overflow its channels, run over its banks, and sweep on into Judah. So you see the, the metaphor here? There's this sp- Now, because you won't accept just the trickling, provisional water of God that he gives you gently, he's going to bring water. He's going to bring a lot of it. It's going to be a rushing flood from Assyria. And it's going to come in from the northeast, and it's going to rush over Israel and destroy it, and rush over Aram, Syria, and destroy it. And guess what? It's going to have a whole lot of momentum when it hits you. And he says, it will overflow its channels, run over its banks. It will sweep into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. So the boy who's born in that land is going to cover everything. And then here's the fun, punny metaphor that's meant to be annoyingly ironic. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. This is—go ahead, go ahead, resist Assyria. Don't believe me. Don't repent. Don't turn around. Don't seek redemption. Just decide you want to keep going. You just go ahead and do that. This This is how he's talking, right? He says, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, and it will not stand for Emmanuel. God is with us. And who is us in that context? The Assyrian warlords. That's who it is. Which has led many modern unbelieving scholars to say that when Matthew put this passage into his gospel— To say, it was about Jesus. The virgin will be with child. They're like, dude, he just saw the word virgin and he just flipped out. And he just took this and he stuck it in there. It's totally out of its context. Doesn't mean anything like this. He's just simply abusing an Old Testament prophecy to do what he wants with it. And so here it is in Matthew. But after Joseph had considered this, meaning divorce Mary quietly because he found out she was pregnant, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because— What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, quote, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, isn't that embarrassing, right? Now, it would be if the oracle that Isaiah gave ended at the end of chapter 8. But it doesn't. The oracle in the Syro-Ephraim War to King Ahaz goes from the end of chapter 6, really the first verse in chapter 7, but it's, it's sort of shaded in the first, and it goes all the way through to the end of chapter 12. So, flip in the Bible, and let's look at this real, real briefly. Look at the last verse of chapter 6. Chapter 6 is Isaiah's formal call God formally calls him this way. He says, "Listen, you're going to be talking to people who are not going to listen to you until they get totally destroyed." And the last verse is this: "And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land." Now, remember his strangely named son we read about, Shear Jeshub his name means, in Hebrew, only a remnant. Right? And see what it says there? And though a tenth remains in the land. You see what he's saying? So God's saying, that's going to happen, and so he names his first kid, only a remnant will return, meaning there's only going to be like a tenth. Only a small group of who's here now is going to be there then. Right? And then he says, the people are going to be like a cut-down stump. That's not a very encouraging picture, is it? Oh, a stump, that'll be nice. Right? Then you get chapter 7. Emmanuel, God with us. That is, God with the Assyrians to kill us. Isn't that nice? Right? The second half of chapter 8, God comes to Isaiah and says, listen, don't lose heart here. You need to keep saying my message. He's like, they're going to call stuff conspiracies. Don't talk like them. You need to say what I tell you. And then look in verse 16 in chapter 8. That's in verse 10—that's 1071 page-wise. He says this. This is God speaking to Isaiah. Bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. That is, take this prophetic word that I'm giving you, and you need to make sure it survives. Because it's not all for right now. Right? You need to write it down. You need to bind it up. There needs to be multiple copies. You need to give it to the people who are following you, who really believe in me. It has to survive. Right? And then he says this. I will wait for the Lord— who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. That's now Isaiah talking. I will put my trust in him. Here I am, here am I, and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. So there's either two or three children of Isaiah at this point. There is the, the one that has the not really weird name, right? Shear Jashub. Then the, there's this Emmanuel child. We don't actually know who that is, but the other two children, these two in this passage, are Isaiah's children. It may be that Emmanuel is one of Isaiah's children. We don't really know. And then, in chapter eight, if you look at the beginning, he has a son, and he's supposed to name the son Maher Hashbaz. So say that five times fast. Maher Hashbaz. I'm assu- I'm just going to go out on a limb here that this kid had a nickname with his friends. Okay. Um, and that means, means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil, meaning everybody's going to steal your stuff, because, and it's going to happen fast, and they don't care about you. Right? Now, you get to the end of chapter 8, and it ends with darkness. Right? Look at verse 20 there. It's on page 1072. To launch the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. And there, when they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Do you get that theme there? It's not bright, right? There's this theme of of darkness, right? And you go, oh, that's kind of—we're that's. going to end there? No, we're only 38 minutes in the sermon. Just hang on with me here, Okay. What's the very next word? Nevertheless. Remember, the chapter divisions were put in in the Middle Ages. Is this oracle over? No. It's still going. This is the next verse. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress in the past. He humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. These are two of the northern tribes in Israel that are going to get totally destroyed. But in the future— He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, the Sea of Galilee is up in Ephraim. It's up where those other two tribes are. Guess who's from there? But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea and along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Do you see what's happening there? It's all darkness. And then he says, these, these kids that I've given you, this mess, I want you to, I want you to take it and I want you to bind it all up, including this, that there is something coming. Now, this isn't the end. It goes all through, through this in chapter 9. Then it gets back to some bad news. Because, you know, God is very thorough. And then in chapter 11, this is how chapter 11 starts. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. What does that mean? Verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, and so on. And then it gets to chapter 12, and chapter 12 is a hymn of praise. That's how the oracle ends, the hymn of praise. That's the whole prophecy. So there's an Emmanuel child, that child, if he's one of Isaiah's children, is also a sign and symbol of something to come. Chapter 8. Even though he's an immediate symbol of the destruction of Assyria. There's going to be a great darkness, and that's why these truths about Emmanuel and the, the, the prophecy has to be sealed up and protected, because chapter 9 is going to happen, that the people will have seen a great light. What's that going to be? Well, in the next verse it says, "'For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given,' Who is that? Chapter 11, from the stump of Jesse, there's going to be a sprout. Now, wait, who's Jesse? David's father. So the line of kings is going to fail. That's going to happen. The line of kings is going to fail. It's going to be like a cut off stump. And the people of Israel are going to be like a cut off stump. But here's something you know, need to know about terabith and oak trees you can't kill the stinking things. You cut them off, and what happens? They sprout little tiny shoots on it. They'll start from scratch There's a tree on our property Right here at High Point It's over there You can see it if you're driving out that way and it, it was a tree that they cut down last year It was really old I mean, there's no way two people could even get their arms around it And the, the guys who run maintenance had to cut it down Because it was hollow in the middle And there were raccoons living in it And an ostrich and stuff like that And so <coughs> sorry. And so they cut it down And then what happened? It sprouted. It doesn't want to die. It's not dead. It's got more to do. And that's the thing about oaks. Like, you think, look, dude, you had a good 500-year run, okay? Like, we cut you off, and we're done. But there's still life in that stump for some reason. And it put out this shoe. And it's—listen, if we don't kill that thing, it's going to grow a whole new tree. Now, do you see this? This is Emmanuel. He's a symbol of something to come a light is going to dawn on those in darkness. To them, a child is going to be born, a son is given. So there's more than just this, Emmanuel. There's another one that chapter 9 speaks of. Who's he going to be? He's going to be from the stump of Jesse in the line of David. He's going to be a new king, even though the line of kings of David is a stump. That's not going to keep going. It's over. But one king, one sprout will come out. And that will be the sprout, if you go back to chapter 9, that will be the light of the world, so that you can end the oracle in chapter 12 with a psalm of praise. It may be that God knew in 734 B.C. that the only way to give people the kind of hope to act the way they had to in fear was not just to point to the Emmanuel that was a sign that they were going to get captured or die, but he was going to have to point forward because they could only deal with their present fear if they could somehow believe in some way in the one who would kill all human fears. Only the one that would destroy death and sickness and ultimately poverty and all the things that we're terrified of can we be freed from the things so that we can actually not live in fear. Even if that salvation in all its fullness was going to come a long way in advance because the Bible says all the way through that what people believed in the Old Testament, God credited to them even if they couldn't see it. In fact, it's very probable that Isaiah doesn't even know what he's talking about. It says in the book of 1 Peter, it says all the prophets of the past, they strained to look into what was going to happen in Christ. And they didn't really see it. They just said what God told them to say. They wished they understood what its significance was and they believed in what they knew. And I would submit to you that it turns out that Matthew knew more about Isaiah than a lot of modern biblical scholars do. Do you remember how the how the gospel writers would quoted Jesus on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that the way to make sense of that is actually that's the first line of Psalm 22. And if you go and read Psalm 22, it's this trial and this longing, and then it, but it ends with, but God will redeem me. And this is, like, it ends with this, I'm trusting myself to God, right? It's a statement of faith, not of lost, not of lostness, right? Same thing here. Isaiah quotes or I'm sorry, Matthew quotes Isaiah seven fourteen. But for I, for Matthew, it's not just that. It's to fulfill what the prophet said when he said this, which is a prophecy that goes all the way through 12, which talks about the light that was coming. It was going to come in Galilee, which is where Jesus was born and did most of his ministry. It was going to be a light to the Gentiles. Those tribes were going to be blessed because that's where Jesus was going to come. And then, Ultimately, he would be the son that was given. He would be the new king in the line of Jesse. He would be the savior of all people. Now, only when you realize that and it works its way in deeper and deeper can you really be free of fear. The fear isn't a rational— it's rationally incompatible with the gospel. Think about what Jesus said. He said, I— Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Now, how can he say that to us in this world? I mean, think, think of the world we live in. How can you not be troubled and not be afraid? Right? But that's what Paul said to Timothy. He said, Listen, for God gives the spirit not of fear, equally well translated cowardice, but of power. And love and self-discipline. How does that work, right? And you see this in the New Testament in the book of Romans, for example. In Romans 8, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, therefore, meaning on the basis of the first seven chapters, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? So he's saying, listen, what happened—well, to put it in context of this sermon— what happened in Isaiah 7 and 8 is over for those who believe. All of the condemnation that we deserve has been put on Christ. And now, in our relating to God, there is no condemnation. It's all been put on the cross. So now, you don't have to be concerned about that if you're in Christ. Now think about this. If that's true, if God is for us, who can be against us? What really is there—what really is there left to fear? Angels, demons, life, death— If the most important thing, the thing that really legitimizes your existence, is the fact that you're going to be eternally related to the God who can give you anything you ever need, in living or in dying, there is nothing that can make you afraid. Because nobody can take from you the thing that's everything. Right? Or look at this, this other passage in Philippians, right? So he's—Paul is rotting in a Roman jail. He's probably going to be executed. He's in a perfect place to be taken by fear. He could I mean, this is a great place to pull an Ahaz, right? And what, is, what does Paul say? He writes to this people in his church in Philippi. He says this, I eagerly expected hope that I will in no way be ashamed, meaning give up on my faith. That's what he means in that context. But we'll have sufficient courage— so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. So what's ashamed mean in that context? That he would behave in such a way as that Christ would not be exalted by who he is. Right? And then he says this. He says, Whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And then he goes on, and he goes like, I oh, wish I was when I want more. If I die now, I'm going to be with Jesus. If I don't die now, I'm going to serve Jesus, and then I'm going to die, and I'm going to be with Jesus. He's like, I, I don't—I may mean, be better to just go right now, but I'd be—that's really how he thought. And he's basically saying, listen, you guys, think about this. If Christ is in you, in, in what set of circumstances do we lose here? Like, like, oh, why are we afraid? He writes, he's afraid of this, from a prison— You see, I'm not saying real Christians don't get scared. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that real Christians don't deal with fear. I'm not saying that either. Here's what I am saying. To the extent to which we deal with fear is the extent to which we don't yet really believe the gospel. That's what I'm saying that when fear comes to take us, when we're really terrified and we're going to show the whole world who our real Savior is, what should occur, what needs to occur to us so fast is, wait a second. This does not rationally connect with the gospel. There's a way, a really profound way in which I don't believe the gospel, and that's what I need to deal with. I need to deal with why the king of Assyria, whatever that's going to be for you this week, or for me, why is that so appealing? And why is trusting the one who gave me a, not a spirit of fear or cowardice, but a spirit of power and of love and of discipline, why is that so unattractive? Why is it so unpersuasive? Why is it so ineffective to me? And then you can turn to the one who says things like, you need help? You need help? Okay ask for a sign as high as the highest heaven or as low as the deepest hell so that I can do something that helps you see that I'm with you. And when Ahaz said no, God got to pick the sign. And God chose to pick a sign that in the immediate foreground would be what he needed to tell Ahaz. And then, when he worked it through till chapter 12 and he pointed forward to something else, he had a much, much greater answer. And he could turn an ironic death into receiving everything. So that the Emmanuel child, the one who would really be born of a virgin, would be the one that brought the great light. That was the child that was born, the son that was given, that was the great king in the line of the stump of David that would redeem all peoples in all places for all eternity. And th- do you remember the last thing Jesus says in Matthew's gospel before he goes? It's the Great Commission, right? Let me bring this full circle to the praying for two people, right? What does he say? He says, Listen to me, guys. All authority that there is, all the authority that there is in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. That's the part we normally pay attention to. Then how does he end it? And I will be with you to the very end of this age or world, which however you want to translate it. Do you see how Matthew brings the whole thing in? It starts with This is what happened to fulfill the word of the prophet in Isaiah. Surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. You don't have to trust in yourself. You don't have to trust in your management ability. You don't have to trust in your design of your future. You don't have to trust in yourself. You don't have to trust in idols. You don't have to trust in any of that stuff. You can trust in this one who went this far to say, if you will trust me God is with you. He'll be named Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. And when his people are saved from their sins, what's true? Romans 8.1, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means what? That if then God is for us, who can be against us? And therefore, for me to live is to Christ and to die is gain. In what situation do I lose here? Because God hasn't given us a spirit to be cowards. He's given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Because he's with us. And all he wants to say is if you don't if you don't stand in your faith, you won't stand at all. Let's pray. Right. Father um, thanks for this passage. Thanks for whatever insight there was in this sermon. Thanks for the people here willing to listen substantively. I pray, God, that as, as they read the passage this week to prepare for small group, that you'd teach them more out of it. I pray that you'd help us to see how you've come to be with us in Christ and to receive the full promise of it. And we, I pray for the death of fear in all of us and that we wouldn't make any decisions out of fear that we out a faith and trust in you. Help us to see that in your word, the opposite of faith isn't unbelief or atheism. It's fear. And that you're calling us to one and not the other. And you've done it so well. And help us to rejoice in it. As we sing right now, God, help us to, to cherish and express how we cherish this truth. Pray in Jesus' name.